right. Okay, so I'm going to ask one of the things we're going to be moving on to. I promise um, we're moving beyond the primordial stories, which someone actually also mentioned last week. You do it in the Al Ziegler's class. Um, but the truth is, we're moving on anyway. Um, and I actually want to move. We're going to be spending the next, I would say, two, three classes um, on the stories of the Avot and utilizing the approach we've been developing through the, the stories of the Avot, which is going to mean. We're going to be doing a lot less of the, um, certainly a lot less critical analysis of the Supreme and carefully looking at the personalities and what they did. And we're going to be looking at it more um, from this anthropological perspective that we've been developing. I do think in some ways the sort of the irony is that the more superficially we look at the stories, and again superficially not meaning not, not intelligently, but superficially meaning structurally, um, actually, the more profound, I think, our understanding of a lot of what the stories of the Avot are about. And I actually wanted to begin with a Midrash and a Ramban, because sometimes I think it's important when we talk about utilizing what, we, what I call a new approach, right, or a sort of different lens through which to view Tanakh, a lot of times it feels new, it feels different. Um, but in fact, nothing we're doing here is not something that Chazal recognized really already thousand years ago at least, okay? So we're going to start with source one, and it's in Hebrew, but I'll translate. Amar Rabbi Yoshua. Now this is, this Midrash Tanchuma and Ramban are both commenting on the Pasuk that we're going to read inside in a couple of minutes. If you remember, Hashem says to Abraham, Lech Lecha Me'artifah, oh, perfect, we're doing it this time of year, actually. We're perfectly corresponding to the to the parshiot. Hashem says to Abraham, Lech Lecha, leave your land where your father is, go to the land of Canaan, and he gets there, Vachnani Atva'aretz, and what's the first thing that happens to Avram when he gets to, to, to Canaan? There's a famine. There's a famine, and he has to go down to Egypt. Okay, so that's what the Midrash Tanchum is commenting on, and it says as follows. Amar Rabbi Yoshua Sichmin, Siman matan lo akadosh farachu Avraham. Hashem gave Avraham a siman, a sign, shekoma she'iralo e'ralo vanav, that everything that happened to him will happen to his children. He says, Hashem chose Abraham from all of his father's household. And then again, the Midrash is going to bring in what we call Psukim that sort of uh, defend their point and make their point. Sometimes, by the way, it's, or not sometimes, it's always critical when you're really, really trying to analyze the Midrash to see which proof texts they bring. Because oftentimes the proof texts are actually totally out of context and don't actually mean what we think. So, but we're not going to be doing that careful analysis today. I want you to get the main point of what the midrash is saying. So the midrash is saying, just like Hashem chose Abraham from all of his family members, so too Hashem chose us from all of the nations of the world. La Abraham ne'emar lech lecha, Hashem says to Abraham, go. Ulevanav ne'emar a'alet ha'me'oni mitzrayim el eret ha'knani v'ha'chiti v'ha'emori v'ha'prizi, etc., etc., el eret ha'vat ha'vat So just like there was a, char- a divine charge for Abraham to leave his land to get to Canaan, so too our journey from a foreign land to Canaan happened as well. La Abraham ne'emar v'avarechecha v'agadlash mecha v'heye bracha v'avarecha v'avarechecha Ulevanav ne'emar, right, Hashem said, gave Abraham the language of this blessing. And to his children, Hashem said, Yivarechecha Hashem, right, the very famous um, blessing that we have from the Kohanim. 
And what you see here happening is that the Midrash is bringing proof texts. It's bringing sukim that are said to Avram as a charge, as a divine command, that's something Avram should do, and the promises that accompany those divine charges. And then proof texts that are brought from the national context that show that, in fact, our experience perfectly parallels that of Avraham. And it goes on and it says, Mika Yisrael. And then it explains by, that in the days of Abraham, by he, I'm one, two, three, four, five lines up from the bottom. Right, we know Abraham goes down to the land of Mitzrayim because there was a famine. Etc., etc. And it goes on and lists all of those things that we see happen in Abraham's life and then we see happen in the lives of his children and his grandchildren. And I'm going to read you the very, um, the, uh, well, all right, we'll skip there. It goes on and on. Ramban says something very, very similar. And Ramban is actually one of the, or the parshan that's most closely associated with the pitgam, or the, the phrase that we say, ma'ase avot siman labanim, that what happened to the fathers, or to the avot, is a siman for the children. And Ramban says as follows, vayhira av ba'aretz, there's a famine, hinei avraham yarad mitzrayim, ibnei hara'av, labor sham lachayot nafshov, hinei habitsurot. So Abraham went down to Egypt so that he could buy his time during the days in, when the land of Israel was, there was nothing here. And the Mitzrim, the Egyptians, kidnapped his wife. They, as we all know the famous story, the Mitzrim saw Sarah, she was beautiful, they took her, and Hashem punished them with all sorts of nigaim. And so what happens is once Paro, once Paro recognizes or, or makes the connection between the suffering within his palace and the taking of Sarah, he sends Abraham out, but he doesn't send him empty-handed. He sends him very, very wealthy. And lo and behold... Abraham's children also went down. The Mitzrim also took their wives. Now, this is a very, again, if we were spending time really seeing what Ramban is doing here, we would try to understand why he uses this as a proof text. He says, There seems to be an implication here that not only did the Mitzrim let the girls live, right? If you remember, kill the boys, but let the girls live. But that that was a way of not just letting them live, but also then absorbing them into Egyptian culture, that that was the second stage, or at least in Ramban's mind, of the sort of destroying of Israel entirely, murdering the men and then um, sort of absorbing the women into Egyptian culture. Just like Abraham left Egypt wealthy, so too we left, and the language parallels between what we all left with. And they shoved us out just like Paro the first did. Nothing happened to the fathers that didn't happen to their children. He's now quoting the Midrash Rabbah. Right? And now here on some level, if we realize what Ramban is doing, he's using it as a metaphor, right? Hashem says, go and conquer the land before your children. It doesn't just mean physically conquer the land. It means chart the course, okay? 
ואתה מוצא כל מה שכתוב באברהם, כתוב בבנאם. One of the things we've been talking about in this class and we've been spending a lot of time on is I keep throwing around the word myth, right? And we clarified last week, we said myth does not mean not true. Myth does not question the historicity of something. Myth is essentially the means by which we create meaning out of everything around us, okay? If we look at what Ramban and what Chazal have been saying for hundreds, really a thousand years, is that these stories about the Avot are just as much myths And again, that does not mean not historical, right? But what they're doing is creating meaning out of those events. There were millions of things that happened to Abraham, millions of things that happened to Yitzhak, Yaakov. What the Torah records for us to know are not the things that might pique our interest. It's not the things that we're curious about. It's those things that create the patterns by which we will always interpret the events that happened to us as a nation. Okay, so now go back a second, and we're going we're gonna to utilize the anthropological language that we've been developing. What is Abraham, and really all of the Avot, but they're focusing in the Midrash on Abraham, in anthropological language? Uh, Abraham is the archetype, right? With, and it's sort of like, it's, it's almost as if, if we say, right, I'll sort of switch the language of the Midrash. The Midrash says whatever happens to Abraham happens as a sign that it's going to happen to his children. If we're looking at it anthropologically, we'll say the reverse. We'll say what was written down in the Torah was written down because it didn't just happen to Abraham. It's what will always happen to Israel. Okay? Abraham is the archetype, Yitzhak and Yaakov as well, and we're going to see how, why we need three, right? why we don't suffice with one. Um, but it's a very, very important way to sort of start looking at the Avot. Right, the very famous question at the beginning of Breshit is why does the Torah start with the creation of the world? It could have started with HaKodesh HaZelachem. Right, and Rashi there gives an answer and all the Mitrashim, all the Mitrashim give answers. But we could really ask the same question, why do we need to start with the stories of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? Why not start at Matan Torah or HaKodesh HaZelachem? Right, if our story is a national story, why do we start with our ancestors? We start with our ancestors because our ancestors are the archetypes and they communicate truths in a very, very, very sort of broad sweeping fashion and they tell us what will always happen. And by the way, the mistakes that the archetypes make, right? Tanakh is unique in the sense that our heroes are not flawless. The mistakes that our ancestors make are archetypal mistakes, right? One of the things, I don't remember if I taught I don't remember if I taught Shmuel Bet here or if that was in a different branch. I don't think no. I did. I never did. Okay, when we study it, never? Oh, that's such a shame. When we study, when we look at the year. What? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> no, I already have an idea for next year. When we talk about David Hamelech, right, we could get into the nitty gritty and we could say, well, do we, are we okay with what he did and are we going to make excuses halakhically or are we really disappointed and how is it possible that a hero can be someone who also raped a married woman? All these horrible things that we can ask and all these wonderful things. But at the end of the day, Right? If we sort of take a step back, what we're saying is the Tanakh is writing a story about this wonderful, God-fearing human being who made mistakes. And so what the Torah is saying is this is what will always happen, even to the best of people, when they are given unchecked, unbridled power. And so you need to understand that Shmuel Bet, bless you, is about power and how power corrupts even the greatest tzaddikim. It's not just about David Hamela. Okay. Yeah. And it also goes further because we often think the fatal flaw, the weakness of the person, can't be overcome, and that will be his downfall. Torah teaches us it's not. A 
hundred, a hundred percent. It is the antithesis of the Christian. It's the antithesis of the right, the fatal flaw in Greek, and the antithesis of the Christian notion that we're born and we can't climb out. There's no original sin, right? It's exa- I think it's the opposite concept. And and again, by the way, every for those of you who were in my Esther and Daniel class last year, right? We said Esther, the story is wonderful and it's entertaining and it's comic relief, and we fear anti-Semitism less. It's a, but Esther, we said, is the archetypal what? Jew in exile. It's not a coincidence that she was an orphan. It's not a coincidence that she was removed from her native land. It's not a coincidence that she was female in a very heavily misogynistic empire. Right there, all of these, she is the quintessential powerless woman with or, or displaced Jew that has to contend with the foreign power. So if we look through, right, and by the way, WML, before he became WML, was the scrawny little guy who couldn't put on the the shir- the shirion, I can't speak English anymore. Well, the armor, thank you. The armor of Shaul HaMelech and couldn't run out, except for having those little smooth little stones, right? And he says that he's going out. So everything, when we start looking at the stories of our ancestors as archetypes, a lot more comes to the fore than when we start get into the nitty gritty. And again, the two are not mutually exclusive. Both are important ventures, but for this class, we're gonna be doing this. Okay. So that being said, let's look in Parakeet Bet. And what I want to do is, I want we're going to be paying attention to what happens to Abraham and what he does and the choices that he makes. But again, put on your anthropologist hats, okay? We're looking for structures, and most profoundly, and I think this comes to the fore very, very much with Abraham, we're going to have to see how it plays out in the life of Yitzhak and the life of Yaakov. But if we look for overarching structures and overarching binaries in the life of Abram, we're going to see that the Torah puts forth a lot of very, very important concepts. So let's start from the beginning. Parakidet. Vayomer Hashem el Abraham. Excuse me, el Abraham. me'artzacha uvnimolatitcha umibet avicha el ha'aretz asher arecha. Leave your father's house, leave everything that you know, and go to the land that I will show you. Okay, what is the first binary that is already being introduced? And again, everything we say about Abraham is necessarily true about Israel. There's a binary being created between Abraham and his family, let's call it, which is, right, and this one directly the Midrash addresses, which is the binary that is being created between correct, Israel and nations of the world. Right, that's on its most basic level. The charge of go, lechacha means separate from, and only, right, go back to Isha and Isha, go back to our binaries here, the only time he is now becoming Avram is when he is moving away from where he came from. Okay. What else? Look at the movement. What direction is he going in? Hmm? Look at your maps. You have these beautiful maps that are microscopic. It's terrible. When I prepare the source sheets on my computer, I automatically have everything zoomed in because it's a touch screen, so I see everything, and then I forget that in real life you cannot see anything here. So my apologies, but you can get a rough estimate of what we're talking about. What direction is Abraham going in? Okay. Go back to the very, very beginning because a lot of things that happened to Avram, the Torah was already planting the seeds so that we can see this binary way back when. Go to the very, very beginning in Perak Bet in Breshit, Pasuk Chet, chapter 2, verse 8. 
Tarek Bet Pasuk Chet says as follows, if you remember, Adam and Chava existed. They were living in the world. God created. Vayita Hashem Elokim Gan Be'eden Mikeden. Vayasem Shem Et Adam Asher Yatsar. Hashem puts him there. And then what happens in the next parak, Pasuk Chavdalet? Remember, if you remember, we can't have the opportunity for eternal life because that conflicts with the binary. God is immortal, man is mortal. So first Adam is here, and then Hashem creates something east of that. I'm doing, I'm doing my, sorry, Yuri's. East of that, okay? But then once he leaves, he goes even further east. Okay, who else moves eastward? Go to the next parak. If you remember, we spoke about Cain, and we said the land rejects him. The land doesn't want to give to him because he's not acting in a humane way. Once you are not human, you are no longer in that covenant between humanity and the land. If you remember, we spoke about Zerah and Zerah. And so parak, Pasuk Tedzai, verse 16 in the next parak. Vayetzei Cain yilichnei Hashem, vayeshev ve'eret nod, kidmat eden. So Cain goes even further east than where Adam and Chava moved to. And if we keep moving on and on, if you look in Parakid Aleph, for example, chapter 11, verse 2, after the Migdal Bavel, it says, Now everyone is branching off into their own unique cultures and their own, and Migdal Bavel is a fascinating story in its own right. So what sense do we get from the beginning of Tanakh? Humanity is always moving east. And now Hashem is saying, uh-uh, Abraham, you are going to move west. Okay, now again, it seems simple, but it's not because directional signals are a critical way by which we understand the world. Okay? All right. What else do you notice? Keep going. What other oppositions? Just in those first few stories. And by the way, some of the binaries are necessarily meant to call the concept of binaries into question. Okay, and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. If someone, if I get kicked out of my land, or if I leave my land, I am for, I am in what? We have two binaries in life, right? Or in when we speak about lands and people and their nations and their connections to the land. We have home and we have exile. Those are the two binaries, and we're going to spend some time later on in the year talking about this concept of us always wanting to get back to the center, right? Abram was home, and then Hashem says, go. But once Abram is here, in theory, this becomes home, and not only does that become exile, but this board is like teensy tiny. I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep drawing. And if we look at our land, Abram came from here, and went into the land. What happens when we are exiled after the first Beit HaMikdash is destroyed? We go right back into that place, which is then, at that point, exile for us, right? Once Avram is in the land of Israel, he has to go down to Mitzrayim, that's considered exile. But which one is which? Where is home and where is exile? The binaries are created. How that's worked through is going to be something that we're going to see Abraham establishing over the course of his life. But it's not necessarily clear that the minute he lands or sets foot in Canaan, that's his home as opposed to exile. Okay, and we're going to have to see how that plays out. Okay, what else? What does Hashem promise from the very, very beginning? Okay, excellent. Uh, so who said that? 
Okay, so I wouldn't say bracha and klala because the place he comes from is not cursed, but let's, let's redefine what does Hashem promise him? What is the promise of, and it will come as no surprise, Okay, so hold that. Excellent. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about that when we talk about what the whole point of chosenness is. Okay, a great nation is. Right now, Abraham has no children. Abraham and Sarah are barren. There is no future. And when they get to the land, in theory, they are, God is promising them, going to be fruitful. Right? You will have a great nation. You will fill the earth. And this promise is repeated over and over and over. Okay? What's interesting, and again, the irony is, in order to have children of his own, he needs to leave Moladito, which is where he comes from. Hashem is saying you need to remove yourself from your roots in order to grow, which is an irony, and it doesn't actually make much sense, but that's part of the of these sort of binaries that are created. Okay, who are the mediators? Let's talk about barrenness and fruitfulness. We have two mediators at this point. Who can somehow, right, either bridge the gap or, or, or move from one end to the next. There's two in the running. So Lot is an, uh, okay. an heir. Excellent. Lot. And Sarah. Okay, now Lot, we have to, and by, I didn't bring them in because I think I've done it in other classes. I try, I don't want to repeat too much. But there were newsy documents. There was a cache of newsy documents that were discovered from the 17th, 1700s BCE. Okay, so right around the time that we're talking about, and again, Mesopotamian law, we have to imagine, was relatively consistent in terms of, it didn't change as quickly as we might imagine. That talked about what to do if a woman in a marriage is not able to have children of her own, and there's lots of different solutions. One of them is you take a surrogate, and for the husband, she becomes a full-fledged wife, and for the original wife, she becomes a shivcha. And if you read the psukim by Hagar, Right? The language there perfectly parallels the Newsy laws in terms of the family dynamic. The other option is you adopt an heir apparent. Right? You take the nephew of your brother, take him in as your own, he becomes the member of your household, and through him you build up. Okay, so now so far there's two mediators in theory. Okay? Which one seems more likely and why? Right, why? Okay. She's old, what else do we know about her? Go back to the end of Parakyodala. She's missing. She's in Akara. Okay? So right now, if we had to venture a guess, or we're Abraham, and we have to assume who the heir apparent is, or who is going to be the one that mediates between barrenness and fruitfulness, we're going to have to assume it's going to be Lot. Okay? He gets to the land, and then let's go back inside. Pasuk. Um, where am I? What was I up to? Pasuk Dalad? Yeah. Avram comes to an already inhabited land, which makes him what? He's a foreigner. Mm -hmm. This is his land, but he is the. Give me a word that's going to be really important later on. In he is the ger, okay, and that is really important because so much of everything about the Jewish experience is remember what it feels like to be an outsider, be nice to outsiders. That is our right. There's a reason we started outside. 
Okay? So Abraham is an outsider in the place where he's supposed to be. Okay. And then he goes down to Egypt. Now, that's also important. Why? Look, jump to Pasuk Yud. Vayira av ba'aretz, vayired Abraham mitzrayma lagor sham kichaved hara'av ba'aretz. Okay, excellent. It's foreshadowing our descent down to Egypt. What else? By the way, Vayered also is really important. And Vayered is not always, either geographically or even type of topographically, accurate in Tanakh. Right? You can go out to war. Um, it'll say either Vayered or Vayalu. It's not always because they were climbing a mountain or going down into a valley. It always implies more. If he's going down to Egypt, it seems correct. Correct. And we're going to spend a class a little further along on metaphors, right? How we conceive of things. But directions, right? No one says, hey, how you doing? And when you're trying to say you're improving, you say, well, I'm on down and down. Right? You say, I'm on the up and up. You say, right? Up is always perceived as better. Down is always perceived as worse. There's a reason why, even though the Tanakh never says it, and God never actually said this to humanity, that we conceive of heavens up there and hell down there. Right? There's all of these, all of these ways that we conceive of the universe as human beings happens to do with directional signs, and we'll get to metaphors later on. What happens when they're in Mitzrayim? What's the irony there? They pretend not to be married. Well, they pretend not to be married. We're going to talk about the wife-sister issue. <laughs> ah, okay, so excellent. So I don't, we did this in my women, I have to like keep looking. We did this in my women's class a bunch of years ago. That's why I'm also skipping. We only know beauty, right? Tanakh, beauty is not a value in Tanakh. Beauty is mentioned. She's been beautiful all this time. It's only mentioned when it's relative to the plot. And in Tanakh in particular, beauty often makes people vulnerable. It's mentioned more often with women than men because women are often vulnerable in a male-dominated society. But when Yosef is the foreigner and he's the, the underling in the house of Potiphar, his beauty is problematic because Aisha Potiphar has more power than him. Right? So we're looking at power structures. Beauty is always very, very dangerous. If you have less power than someone else, it makes you very, very vulnerable. Which is why you mentioned beauty. Yeah, sorry. What were you going to say? Okay, so what's interesting there? She becomes, Sarah in theory is supposed to be, again, still in theory, a mediator between barrenness and fruitfulness. But what does she begin to represent for in Mitzrayim when she's not in the land? The opposite. Right? And again, we don't know if it meant sterility the way that it automatically means in, in the story with Abimelech later on, it says it explicitly. But she seems to represent right, the opposite of health and fruitfulness and robust. Right? She brings with her these nigaim. And so they're kicked out. Okay? And so there's something to be said about the mother of the nation needing to be in the land as well. Okay? All right, what happens? And by the way, why are they saved? In Mitzrayim. Very, very important. Only reason. Because of the women. Hmm? Because of the women. Um, but who, what, meaning what saves them? Sarah. Sarah. Sarah and Abraham, really. Well, Abraham, you can argue, saves himself. Divine intervention. Okay? Divine intervention leads them back from exile to the land. Okay. Well, it's the... Egypt recognized the power of God. 
Yes, but I wouldn't give him too much credit. Hold on. Okay, so I wouldn't give him too much credit for the very simple reason that in the ancient world, when something out of the ordinary happens, you automatically attribute it to a god, and you automatically attribute it to the god that seems to be new in the in the in town. Right? When Yonah's on the ship and there's a big storm, they don't say, oh man, we forgot to check the weather forecast. They say, who made their god angry? And when they realize it's him, they threw him overboard. Right? Again, get back into the mind of ancients where nature and man, and it's all one big interactive system. Right? I wouldn't give Paro too much credit that he's like a, a wonderful, uh, just because he's God-fearing doesn't necessarily make him righteous. Uh, but he right? was trying to placate this foreign... Um, yeah. And yeah, I think I'll be said, this is your god, so... Good. Yeah, I really also wanted the negata stuff. I, I mean, listen, you could give him, you could give him credit. That's nice. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm being too hard on him for kidnapping women. Um, okay, here we go. Back inside. Okay. He's sent away with lots of wealth, and he goes back up. And now we see already something else happening. And now, of course, they're going back up to the land. So we get the sense that we're returning to where we left off, right? Excuse the commercial, the commercial break. Now we are resuming our regularly scheduled Abraham's movement. So tell me now what the Tanakh is already introducing, what concept. Is that true? There's no, there's no room in the entire land of Canaan for two rich people? Yeah. Okay, excellent. We're, got, we're not even there yet. Lot is the only one that makes that choice. Everyone else is rejected. Hold that. Right? It's saying there were so many other people there, right? But there was something here in the, in the tension that was created between Avram and Lot. Avram el Lot. We're brothers. There shouldn't be any fighting. This whole land, and I'm going to be paraphrasing, that Hashem promised to me, is for you. Okay. Before, because we know the end, but don't go there yet. What is, I have to erase some stuff here. directional signals, okay, we are always oriented eastward, which means, and again, there's synonyms for different directions in Israel, okay? Hanim. 
right? Panim is a synonym in Tanakh for Kedem. What's a synonym for Yam? In Tanakh, only uniquely, because we are always oriented east. Achor. Right? If you look in the BDB and you look Achor, it could mean behind you, or you'll also see it means west. So Kedem is Panim, Yam is Achor. If I'm always oriented eastward and I say go, Yamin or small, what am I offering? Yamin or small. I'm offering north or south within the promised land. What does Lot do? Lot goes east. Lot chooses out of the promise. Okay? So now if I still had my binaries up here, Lot was just knocked out of the running. Okay, he chooses to leave from the promise, and let's look at why he chooses, because there is something very important in his reasoning, and another binary implied there as well. He's, it says as follows, Pasuk Yud, Vayisa lot et inav, Vayaret kol kikar hayerdin, kikula mashkelet neishachtei Hashem et zom ve'et amorah, kegam Hashem, keeret mitzrayim ho'acha tzohar. What does Lot look and see? He sees the lushness of the land, which is the binary or contrasts to the dryness, for lack of a better word, of the land of Canaan that he's living in. And by the way, the lushness, they make a comparison here, and that's not an accidental comparison. The lushness of the area of stone is comparable to the lushness of of Egypt, which is, again, we know, right, we're talking about identity. There are nemesis in terms of cultural identity. We're leaving there because everything they did is wrong. We're going to Canaan to be different. Where did he go? If he's going Kedem, he has now officially sort of cemented himself as a binary to Abraham within the land. Okay? There's something else important. What? Oh, I thought it. There's something else important about the lushness versus the dryness. And I think there's something very, very critical going on, and it goes back to what we talked about last week. It's important that Israel is dry. Why? And we're going to talk about this when we get to the So it's not, yes, that's the typical, yes, because we always have to look up and we have to dive into Hashem and we have to realize our dependence on Him. All true. But go back to what we talked about last week with that cycle between God, man, morality, and the land. On some level, by being in the place that's the driest, or the most barren, so to speak, it's almost as if to say, our stand, the standards for our behavior, for morality, are by definition, the starting point is different. Okay, And so there's something very important there. But here, the lushness of, and it's going to go on and it's going to clarify this, what does it say? Pasuk, um, you'd go back to your bed. It says, Avram yashav be'eretz kena'an, lot yashav be'arei hakikar. Right? So the Tanakh is cementing the binary that Lot initiated. Vayehal adzdom be'anshei stom ra'im v'chata'im l'hashem me'od. So if lushness is associated with evil, then we have to assume, by definition, dryness is associated with righteousness. Right, and we're going to get to that. And in fact, the binary that's created between the evil of stone and the righteousness of the man who prays for their salvation in the land of Israel, right? That binary is further accentuated. Okay, let's look back inside. Yeah. This might be a real stretch, but dryness also goes to the 
barrenness that's opting out of solving the barren problem for a hundred, a hundred percent. And then later, no, but and then later it makes sense that the malachim come both to sell about Yitzchak. Oh, and oh, oh I like that. I like that. Stone. That the two are almost one and the same. That's very, very interesting. And yet, we'll get to this. They still save him, right? right which is also important. Because we're going to see so does Abraham, which call, which talks about, which is really what the promise, I think, is all about on some level. Um, but that's interesting, right? The two come hand in hand. They're in. Listen, the barrenness of the, it's all, remember, that's why I started with roots last week, even though it's out of order in Tanakh, because it's all one in the same system. We have to keep that in mind. Okay, go back inside. What else do we notice? Or actually, you know, we're going to move on to the next one, and I'm going to, and then you'll tell me what you notice. Pasuk, go to Parakidalid. Tell me what happens here. It starts listing. There's four and five kings. I mean, sorry, I'm in the next parakidah, chapter 14. Okay, there's four and five kings, which in, in, in the ancient Near East is essentially saying what? World War. Okay, there's basically World War. And again, we're, we're, we're superimposing modern terminology onto what happened. But all the powerful kings of that arena went to war with each other. You have the four against the five. Who wins? The four. Four? Okay. And then what happens? Why does Abraham get involved? Abraham gets involved. Why? Because Lot was kidnapped. Okay? When Abraham goes out to war, so now the four kings are the most powerful kings in the world. Okay? In quotation marks. But then Abraham defeats Four, which makes Abraham the most powerful man. Let's use really childish terminology. Abraham is the winner, and they are the losers. Okay, but what makes Abraham the winner in this case? Why? What was the impetus itself for going out to war? And this is really, really important. Hmm? What drove him was. Uh, no, so I think he's a, no. Very important. This war happens after Lot's already out of the problem. Abram was not saving Lot. If that had been, if the story had happened before, we could say, okay, he needs to keep his progeny alive. That's not what's happening. The difference between the winners and the losers. And by the way, he's not doing it for progeny, and he's also not doing it. The Tanakh makes very clear when he refuses the spoils. He's also not doing it for material gain. He does not want their money. The only thing driving him is. Morality, right? Morality to save an innocent person. Okay, he's not going to save his child or his next thing kin because Lot has made that binary was already developed. Okay, he's going out just because he is moral. Okay, now why is that really really important? And he doesn't take any of the money. He's the only one who does it. What? Okay, he's the only one who does it. Think also, go back to the text and see what we're talking about here in terms of when God gets involved, in terms of chosenness. Look at what he says, right? Adam uses that, if we go back inside, when they offer him the money, um, here we are, when they offer him the money, it says, Pasuk, go to Parak Pasuk Yutet in, para, in that chapter, okay? It says, Vayivarchayu vayomar, Baruch Avram el yom kunesh shamayim ba'aretz, Take all the money. 
Vayomer Avram el Melech Stom, Harimoti Adi el Hashem el Elyon, Kunesha Mayim Baaret, in Michut Vad Srok Naal, Vimekach Mikola Sher Lach, Lotomar Ani Heesharti et Avram, Bil Adai Raka Sher Achlu Han Arim, the Chelek Anashim, Asher Halchuiti, Aner Eshkol Umamre Him Yikhu Halkam. Avram makes two things, two things come hand in hand here. What are they? And that gets back to the topic of chosenness, which is really what this is all about. Avram makes clear that what two things come hand in hand. Why did Avram go out to war? Because he was moral. But going out to war, and he was right on the basis of morality, became the springboard or the, the podium for declaring what? Kiddush Hashem, right? which is ultimately what it's all about. The most important overarching binary that we have in all of this is what? The most important, Abraham is the archetype for? Chosenness. Right? We take it as a given that there's this notion that Hashem chose Abraham, Hashem chose us, Hashem. The concept of chosenness is the most overarching binary. There's chosen and then there's not rejected, just not chosen. There's a big difference. Okay? We're going to see there's going to be not chosen, and then in two weeks from now, we're going to talk about the rejected category. Remember we said not every binary has only one option for its opposite. There's non-chosen, and then there is rejected, and we're going to have to see which fill into the ball into which category. But now we're just talking about chosen and non-chosen. Tarak was not chosen. Avram was chosen. Why? What is chosenness all about? Hmm? So the two answers are one and the same, but it's about what? It's not about superiority. There's nothing in this text that implies that Avram felt he was chosen and therefore he was superior. It's just a responsibility. It's a mission. It's a responsibility. How do we know that? Go back to the very beginning when Hashem calls why is he chosen? The answer is right there. Okay, that also, that's all part of it. And? Hashem says, right? The whole the phrase there, Milam is, is bracha. Hashem is promising bracha, bracha. For what? It's not so that Abraham can live the good life or have lots of children or live on the land peacefully. It's the nivrechu vecha kol Okay. Chosenness is not a is not an end in itself. Chosenness is the inception of the process whereby, in theory, all the nations of the world become blessed through everything we're going to see the other doing. Okay, first and foremost, morality, taking care of people that are vulnerable, that are captured in war. And again, these are all metaphors, right? For very important concepts that happen. Chosenness is the starting point. The goal is the Nivrakhubakakol Goyetar. Okay? Yeah. But then, you know, what's interesting is Hashem finally separates further. So, Oat leaves, then Hashem speaks to him. The war is over, and he separated himself morally from the other nations. Hashem speaks to him. Again. So, excellent. I will say there's two types of speaking that Hashem does to Abraham, right? We sometimes imagine they had this ongoing chit chat happening. It did it, it doesn't, right? We see there's about 15 times where Hashem speaks to Abraham in total. One, and there's two different types. One is a charge, whatever it is. And the other is 
a reaffirmation of the promise. The charge comes, and then every time we think we're getting there, right? Think about maybe Lab Ruth was very similar. We think we're going to get there, and then there's a something, there's a wrench in, the, right? There's something thrown in. Every time it appears to Abraham like the promise is never going to come to fruition, then Hashem steps in and says, "Don't worry, I promise, it's all good, it's going to work out." Right? Those are the two times. So you're right. I would say every time with Lot, for example, every time he moves further and further away, Hashem has to reassure Avram, I promise, don't worry, it's going to happen through a different means. When, um, I mean, really all the time, right? When, even when Avram himself says, but all I have left is Eliezer, Hashem says, no, 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 don't worry, that's not the end of the story. Those are the two times he speaks. So I think you're right. I think what you're sensing is perfect, that every time there's reason for Avram to doubt that the promise is possible, Hashem steps in and reassures him. Right, that's where the, I, I think that's where the whole, where Chazal talked about the Tenisil note, which if you remember, some of you who were here for the Satan Shir at the beginning, it was originally, the Second Temple Jews originally came up with a list of the Tenisil notes, and then the Mifarshim sort of built upon that. I think that's where it comes from. It's almost like we divide up each time it looked impossible, what he was asked to do, and then Hashem reassures him. Yeah? When you talk about chosenness, mm-hmm. God really chose Moshe, but Avram really chose God, because had God um, not... Yeah, because Avram was the one who had to make the first step. And to okay, so hold that back to the very end. I want to address that very quickly because we actually have no idea how that happened. So hold that. And I think it's important that we don't know. Hold that. That's really, really important. Okay. Um, again, I'm going to run through a couple of other contrasts that I think are important because we're, we're beginning to run out of time. But look inside. There's a major, major binary that is created between. In Prakim, Yudzayin Yudchet. Or Yudchet, really. Right, skin yud chet, and tell me the binary that is created in that parent. It's at 18. <coughs> what binary is created? And it's a very, very important binary, and it fits into this idea of chosenness, I think. Between Lot and Abraham again. Well, so we have it between Canaan and Stone. I'll put that up there because why not? But it's not really about Canaan and Stone. They're sort of the background of where it's taking place. Right? There's nothing specific about what's the binary that's created in that para. There's there's like almost two stories that are mirror images of each other. Hmm? Yishmael we're getting to next week. Um, interesting. Life and death. That's interesting. I have to think about that. I'm not sure it's only about life and death, but I want that. But listen, it's for sure there. Um, there was one other. Yeah. It's about hmm? how, how, how Abraham welcomes people into the tent and how Lot has to hide Abraham in his dwelling. There is hospitality. And then there is inhospitable. Okay, now, why is, did I do it backwards? No. Why is that? Right, of all things, you could have said, and then the Malachim came and Abraham was, I don't know, handing money out to the poor. And then why, or that's really actually similar to hospitality. I'll give a different example, right? If we were, if Abraham was a rabbinic Jew, they came and Abraham was davening for 20 minutes and, and you know, low mumbled through Shmonet, right? Why? It's hospitality. And go back to the idea of chosenness. And go back, by the way, I'll put another binary in there. Where does Lot, what is Stone, and where does Abraham live? Us. Uh, Abraham's in the desert, and, um, and Lot is in the most fertile place he could find. Okay, so he's fertile, but there's something else. Lot is in the city. 
there. Right, east and west is always there. Why is that important? And what does that have to do? Okay, right, go back and we spoke about this. We said, who was the first person to build the city? And he named it for his son, Cain. Cain was the first city builder. He built it and he called it for his son. Because the person who knows what humanity is capable of and how horrible human beings can be to each other is the first one to say, I better build a really tall wall with a lock and make sure no one comes in because I could be vulnerable to the evils that man perpetrates against himself or each other. Okay? There's, of course, of course. But th that's exactly what it is. <coughs> Nomadism, and again, we're not saying one is necessarily in a, in, in a vacuum ideal versus the other, but certainly in the context of Avram versus Lot. The idea that he lives in a tent, right? And by the way, the Midrashim pick up on this. When they talk about the tent with the four doors versus the ark that Noah closed, this image of the tent, of a nomad, of being open, of welcoming in strangers says what? It's also more vulnerable. Of course it's more vulnerable, but when can you allow yourself to be vulnerable? When you live in a moral society, right? When you live in a society where you're not terrified of outsiders, then in theory you could be more open and when you need, when you are terrified of what people may do to you, and in stone, by the way, they bash the door down. Right? That's why it's similar to the story of Pilegesh Begiva, because in Shoftim, in the beginning of society, women are safe and women can ride on mules and they can be Devorah and Ya'el and live outside and do what they do. And then by the end of Shoftim, when society gets bad, the women are raped and they're murdered and people push into the house and they, and they kidnap them at ceremonies. Right? Because if society is safe, then women are safe. If society is safe, then everyone is safe. Right? So the Tanakh is very aware of this idea that you can allow yourself to live, again, in a metaphorical tent if you're living in a safe society. But this goes back to the idea of chosen and not chosen. Means not everyone's going to be rich off of you, but in theory, the chosenness, the responsibility of chosenness is to create a moral world. Okay? That's what the chosenness is all about. And that's why Abraham is the paradigm. When we talk to our kids, we say, Abraham is all about hachnasat orchim. It's not just hachnasat orchim. It's what hachnasat orchim represents versus stone, the people in stone who were unable to do that. Okay? Now, the question is, what's the significance of all of this? So I think that on some level, right, and I think that's why it's important when I said we're not getting into the personalities, right? We may not like what Sarah did to Hagar. We may not, we may find it offensive, by the way, Tanakh also finds it troubling. There's lots of ways to address Hagar's pain within it. But by taking a step back and seeing the binaries, we're getting less into the sort of personalities and the emotional elements of the story and seeing more what are these archetypes communicating to us. And that's important, and I'll tell you why. Go back, for example, go to Shmot, Parakbet, Exodus chapter 2. Because what we begin to see is that the stories of the Avot as paradigms are really, really important in terms of our memory. Wait, what do I mean by that? Go to Shmot Parak Bet, for example. Or go to even from the beginning of Chav Gimel. The Nesra are in Mitzrayim, and they're slaves, and they're suffering, and they can't keep up, and they can't breathe. They're crying and they're begging, and again, Elohim, not even Hashem. They're not necessarily aware of Yud Kevavke, the God of Israel. They're just screaming out to the gods to help them at this point. Elohim et et Yaakov. 
Vayar Elohim et Bnei Yisrael, Vayeda Elohim. And in the next parak is when he appears to Moshe and he says, Ani Hashem, right? Right, he says, They knew me as a family God, right? But they didn't know yet Hashem, but here I am, and I'm going to appear on the world stage for the first time by taking Bnei Israel out of Mitzrayim. But what, holds, what it seems, the function of the stories of the Avot, in its most, on its most basic level, is that it enabled us to understand the current. Why did Hashem step in and save us? Because of the promise he made to the Avot, because we are part of this link. If you go a little bit further down, by the way, when is the memory of the Avot employed by us or by a person to save us from being totally wiped out? Hmm? Yeah, in Perak Lamed Bet, right? B'nai Yisrael sin. Hashem says, Guys, here's the deal. We're going to have a covenant. You have to worship me exclusively, and then I'll take care of you and provide you with food and keep you alive in the desert and bring you to the promised land. And what do we do within 41 days or 39 days? We worship a modern God. Okay, so Hashem wants to destroy us because, very, very simple, we breached a contract. We breached the covenant. It's all about the covenant. And now Hashem says, and what does Moshe say to Hashem? In the Midbar, he says, it's going to make you look bad in front of the other nations, and it's not going to be good, and here you proved yourself, and now you're going to look like a weak God. But at the end of the day, he says, Perak Lamed Bet Pasuk Yud Gimel, Zechor Avraham Yitzchak Uli Yisrael Avadecha Asher Nishbata Lahem Bechbach. You cannot forget the promise you made to, your, to their fathers. Invoking the memory of the Avot seems to have this effect, but I want to—I think it's important. It's not the effect because it works magically. Right? We don't believe in changing Hashem's mind as magic. Invoking the memory of the Avot means what? It's a promise, but it also means, remember, it's two-sided. It means we remember our job, our role, right? Invoking the memory of the promise, what we're saying is, Hashem, we want to get back to that covenant. It's not saying have pity because you feel bad because you made a promise and you can't go back on it. Hashem made a covenant with Abraham. So invoking the memory of the Avot is recognizing our place in that covenant. I think that's also really, really important. And again, later on, by the way, when B'nai Israel are in Galut, if you go to Yishayahu Nun Aleph very quickly, B'nai Israel are stuck in Babel, and they can't get out. And again, Babel is the very place where, or geographical, broadly speaking, area where Abraham came from. So Yishayahu needs to give them Nechaman. He needs to give them words of, of idud, of encouragement that will keep them, that will get them through that very, very prolonged Galut. And he says as follows, Pasuk Bet, Habitu, Parak Nunala, 51. Habitu el Avraham avichem, ve'el saratu cholelchem, ki echad krativ v'avarchehu ve'arbehu. I promised them that. So ki nicham Hashem tiyo, nicham kol charboteha, v'yasem midbara ke'iden v'arvata kegan Hashem sason v'simcha yimateba, todah v'kol zimra. By remembering the avot, it enables us to see that what we're in, if we are in exile, just like Abraham, it's only temporary. Okay, there's something very, very critical about that. Okay, there's another thing that I think is really two other things that I think are important, and we're gonna we're gonna sort of wrap up with this. The other thing is the issue of distinctness. Okay, and we touched upon it when we said responsibility. 
in, in, I think it's important, and again, I think in our postmodern world where, boundary, where right, boundaries are not okay and distinction is not okay and saying you are this as opposed to this, it, it's never okay. The Tanakh is actually, and we're going to see this when we get to the Halachot, for example, in Vayikra, distinctions are really, really important. The world was created through distinctions. The world was created through saying this belongs here and this belongs here and this species is this and that's a different species. And one of the things that I think is important when it comes to Abraham is that it's saying two things. It's saying distinction is really, really part of the process, but for a purpose, right? Which is what we said before. You are not distinguished to be better. You are distinguished as the beginning of this process, of this journey for inferior humanity. Okay, so distinction can only be understood if it's sort of this two-way, if it's this two-way um, chart. The other thing, and these are the last two things that I want to leave with. One is God's role, okay? If we look through all the things that happened in Abraham's lifetime, I'll give you an example, and we're going to talk, this is going to sort of get us into what we're going to be talking about next week. If, if I asked you, or if you gave your kids a trick question, try this at the Shabbos table this week, and you say, name Abraham's kids, what are they going to say? These Israeli kids might know this because they actually have the cute in, uh, in Tanakh. Go to the beginning of Parak Lafay in Breshit, and it says, By Yosef, now Sarah is already not alive anymore, and Yitzchak is already moving on to the Yitzchak journey, which we're going to talk about next week. By Yosef, Abraham, by Yikachi, Shah, and Shmak, Turah. And it goes on and on and lists all these other descendants of Abraham Avinu. But why are they less relevant when it comes to the story? And this is going to touch upon what we're talking about next week. Abraham's already left the stage of the covenant and Yitzhak's taken it already. Ah, interesting. Okay, so you could argue Yitzhak has already accepted the mantle. I think that's true. I think there's something else that we're going to be um, leading into next week's topic. Yeah? It was earlier on, it was Sarah who was supposed to be the mother of the, of the, of the future. <laughs> and this Keturah is not, they're, they're like a, a, a postscript. But okay. they're not part of the narrative of Jewish people. Are they okay. ever mentioned again? No, no, no. Uh, Midian, yes, they are, yeah. and we're going to get to it. Uh, they're the ancestors of nations that become either... But, 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 um, not, but, but not part of the Abraham No, 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 of course not. Of course, no, there's only one. So I'm going right. to say two things, and we're going to talk about this next week. It's going to so be his the next... So his fertility is, is, it has, is irrelevant in a sense, or it's split. You were talking about splits, and so you have his... His destiny fertility, which is Yitzchak, and his biological fertility. Okay, so excellent, and I'm going to redefine those terms. That, but you're touching upon yeah. it. I, yeah. I don't have. Your no, terms you're 100. No, but you're you're there. You're there. Yeah. Both Yitzchak and Yishmael have promises attached for future attachment. Ah, okay. Ah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Right, I would say that's for, that's very very interesting. And Yishmaelim appear much more often in the narratives. I would say also what you're touching upon is. The, some, there's a natural, and then there's the the, the fruit that God is involved in. Okay, the fact that Sarah is barren to begin with is important. Okay, because we're going to see, and this is we're going to get to this next week. The idea of God being involved in the birth is critical. And if it's a natural birth, then Hashem gets involved in a different way, and there's almost a rebirth, which is what we're going to talk about next week. Sarah is from inside, right? And we're going to see. We're going to talk more. And Hagar and, and Keturah are both, so to speak, okay, these are arbitrary terms, but outsiders, and we're going to have to talk about that. 
But we're going to see the natural way of things. When Ammon and Moab both have children with their father, or excuse me, when, when the daughters of Lot have children with their father, it happens almost instantaneously that first night, right? It's almost there's something to be said about if it happens too quickly or too naturally or too easily or without the intervention, then perhaps, right, if, if people lose the ability to recognize God's place in it. Yeah. Except that Tamar with, with Yehuda and Correct. She's the Boaz one and, and, and Ruder also. So Boaz and Tamar, no. Yehuda and Tamar would but, put in but the same. But those are, each one has like a special, special tafkid Correct. In the future. Correct. It's not saying that in order for someone to have a tafkid, it has to have the backstory of the mother. But oftentimes we're going to see, certainly with the does. Certainly with the other. Okay, last thing, uh, two, one other thing is the, the notion of faith. Okay, if we ask people what is Abraham's contribution, what, why was Abraham a revolutionary, what would people say? They would say monotheism. But is there any indication? What has, monotheism means, what we had, what we got at Har Sinai, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Lo That's revolutionary. And that's why, for those of you who have been in my other classes, Hashem used the suzerain vassal treaty to communicate it. Just like you have to be loyal exclusively to this suzerain, same language, you have to be exclusively loyal to me as your God. You cannot worship any of the other gods for this covenant to exist. That's the revolution of monotheism. Is there any indication, or is there a big deal made, or are there any expectations that Abraham denounced, renounced every other god and worship Hashem exclusively? It's irrelevant. We don't care if Abraham is worshiping other gods or not, right? Not, and again, we're not saying, therefore, it means that Abraham was a pagan. That's not. We're saying the Tanakh is not addressing that because that's not what Abraham is an archetype for. Later on, we're going to get there. Moshe will be. Bnei Israel will be. Right now, the archetype, Abraham is an archetype for what? Who said that? Faith. Faith. Hashem says, lech lecha, and he goes. Isn't that it's simple. like it's a blind thing. No, I don't think so, because you can listen to lots of different gods all at the same time. But it doesn't ever say that Correct, because, and again, that, don't, I, please, please, please don't misquote me. I'm not saying Abram worshipped lots of other gods. I'm just saying the story does not address it. It doesn't care. What about morality? Right? Um, I would, ah, interesting. That's really, really interesting. But I was, ah, okay. I chose, I chose God because I know you, Abraham. I know that you're going to instruct your children. children That's, uh, that's interesting. Right, when he's dominant for stone. I like that a lot. I'm trying to think, though. There were other people, there are other moral people. Abimelech is moral. When Abimelech steals, he's moral. Amazing. Okay, that's what I think distinguishes. Avimelech is moral, and Abraham is moral, but right after that we see Yitzchak, and then we see the people of Avimelech's place, you know, messing with the wells of Yitzchak. There's something about being moral. Again, I wasn't going to do this here, but the binary, you could be a, you could be moral, and you could be moral, but are you a founder of that movement? That's different. Abraham had moral, a moral chain that came out of him. Avimelech was a really good guy, but he had no control over his people. I think correct, correct. That's interesting. I, I have to, I, I, I have to see if that's something independent of. Um, I have to give that more thought. That's really, really interesting. You know, I have to think about it. It explains why Hashem chose Abraham. Right. Yeah. But ultimately. But right. Yeah. And ultimately, his last Nisayim the Akedah forces him to morality. Ah, okay. Uh, so it's so funny. I, I went back and forth a million times if I wanted to do Akedah. <laughs> 
I think not. No. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll be totally honest. I haven't yet found an explanation that fully, fully to me makes meaning. You could go through all of the interpretations from the, you know, the beginning. It's something that I'm still sitting with and still trying. But yes, I would say most superficially, um, I don't know if it's choosing between morality and faith. I think it's between faith and rationale. Um, it, it's a tr- it, yes. I'm, I'm totally being upfront. I'm totally not. I'm totally not addressing. I might. I, I do. <laughs> now you got to think about it. <laughs> Oh, okay, excellent, correct. What is Abraham in the Midrash? Abraham is Gidon, right? The Midrash about Abraham is taken straight from Paragvav and Shoktim. Gidon, who's Yerubal, who gets up in the middle of the night and destroys his father's idols. And if you look at the Midrash on Abraham, right, so that's the Midrash. He woke up in the middle of the night, or he destroyed his father's idols. He made it look like they were battling to look, look how stupid they are. But I think you're right. I think there's something there where the Midrash is bothered that Abraham, and by the way, not just the Midrash, the entire book of Jubilee, Abraham is the hero in, in the book of Jubilees. If you look at the second temple literature, Abraham is totally redefined as a devout monotheist, which is, which is interesting, because like you're saying, the need to say that about him means that they felt it was missing in the text. That's, that's really, really important. Yeah. Publicly calls out and describes Hashem as Yes and no. Yes and no. I will say the reason. Again, I'm not. I'm really, really. I, I don't want to be misunderstood at all. I'm not saying it's very possible. Abraham recognized somehow that God was the only true, all-powerful God. All I'm saying is. Hashem never demands that of him the way he demands it of us as a people. The first thing, Anochi Hashem Elokecha is what Hashem says to us as a people. And what he says to Abraham is, Lech Lecha, it makes no sense. You're coming with a barren wife to a barren land. Trust me. Work with this. But I think there's something important about that. I think there's something. Again, if, if Abraham were a monotheist and Yitzhak and Yaakov were all monotheists, then we don't really literally, meaning if we're thinking, we don't need Matan Torah, then we could start with Shabbat, right? Meaning there's a there's a progression, there's a transition. And I think, again, it's all, it's perfectly possible that Abraham was, right? Listen, there's certainly Tzukim where it shows that they entertain that they're, right? When when the Ebeds comes and he says, and they shake hands and they say, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Nahor, right? So they're not going around saying, your God doesn't exist, he's Ketzab is Ahab, my God is the real thing. They're not doing that. They're not going around touting monotheism, that was not what Abraham was doing. Abraham was a beacon of morality, and I do think that's important. Abraham was a beacon of acknowledging his God on the international stage. But we don't see it as a mission that Abraham goes around declaring that everyone needs to be monotheist. It's just not part of the narrative. Right? He davens for the people of Stone that they don't die if they don't deserve to die. What? Wow. Yeah, the Hanefesh Asher Asu B'charan, all of the Kira of that thing. It doesn't even say educated. It says the Hanefesh Asher Asher Asu B'charan. Yeah, so what does that mean? The 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 slaves in the household, the maidservants. Well, what so they weren't being maternal. Listen, it's very possible. It's very very possible. It's very possible. You know, if Avram is going to give everyone in his household a Brit Milah, but again, even a Brit Milah is not. We weren't the only ones that did a Brit Milah. 
right? A lot of people practiced circumcision. The, one that, the ones that really did not were the plishtim, and that's why orlot plishtim is such a big deal, and that's what David has to bring back after the war. But the, the you know, again, but again, I'll go back to what we said before. The, the need to read that into the text and fill in means that for Jews living in certain periods in time, that was missing. Are we always superimposed? Look at the Ramban who's living in a time under, under the church who killed people for faith. So if you read the Ramban on the Akedah, Hashem never asked him to kill him. He misunderstood. Right? It was Ole, not Ola. Because for the Ramban to sit with the idea that a God asks us to die for our religion when he's up against the church who's killing people for religion, that didn't sit well. So part of the beauty and the elasticity of Tanakh is that we're always superimposing our, our needs and our concerns onto the text. That's what Tanakh is there for, right? But if we go back and just look at the simple, simple pshat, HaNefesh Asher Asubacharan means the, the people they had ownership over, the Shvachot and Avadim, right? But, but it, doesn't, it doesn't negate the homiletics either. I mean, Parshanut is not negated by pshat. It's just different layers of the text. And that's important also to remember. Okay, we're gonna finish with this one last talk because we have 30 seconds left. One thing which I think is really, really important we keep talking about what's said, what's said, what's said. I do think, and maybe this is my own take on things, but I also think ellipses are important, things that are left out. Things that are not said are often as important as things that are said. And we mentioned, I don't remember who just asked a couple of minutes ago, in terms of Avraham and Hashem choosing Avraham, or why Hashem chose Avraham. Why Avraham, right? What about Avraham enabled him to have this faith when Hashem said, Lech lecha? What was it in Avraham that enabled him to get up and go the Torah doesn't tell us. And I think that's important because I think as much as there's an archetype for all these different things, how to interact with strangers and how to interact with tyranny and how to interact with nature when there's a famine, there is no one path to faith. And I think that's very important. Covenant is there, he's the archetype for covenant. But how we arrive at that very deep understanding or visceral ability to follow the irrational, I think the Torah is acknowledging by leaving it out that for every single person, that's a different progress, that's a different Sort of process. So I think that that's as important as what's said, and I will leave you with that for now, and we will begin next week with Yitzhak. So if you're not familiar with the Yitzhak stories, read ahead, because they're really cool. Okay. Bye, Kaya. Um, we missed you. Works.